Welcome to Getting Curious and happy Black History Month. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Associate Professor of Clinical Law and Director of the Civil Rights Clinic at NYU School of Law, Deborah Archer, where I ask her, how does the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow laws still affect Americans today? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Vaness. I'm going to get straight into our guest this week. Welcome, Deborah Archer. Um, you are a NYU professor of, I was just joking and saying a gajillion things, but you have, you do have very many jobs. So could you just tell everyone, like, what is your scope of professorship? Well, thank you for having me. I am a professor of law at New York University School of Law. And I teach in areas of civil rights and racial discrimination. I also help run a center at NYU called the Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law. And outside of my full-time job, I have a bunch of other roles, including being a board member of the American Civil Liberties Union. So it sounds like you have like a ton of free time. Yes. And I, <laughs> in that free time, I squeeze in being a parent to two kids where I, where I can. Ah, well, <laughs> thank you so much for taking your time to come here and to talk to us. So... February is a beautiful month for very many reasons, but it's also Black History Month, which we love Black History Month. And I think, you know, as a white person, and that I'm a white person in America, um, that there is too many people, too many white people who don't understand, who aren't curious to understand the ways that racism impact America now. And if they do start to get curious about it, they're like, well, honey, that was 300 years ago, or that was 200 mm-hmm. years ago. And I think that, I mean, I've heard that since I was like a four or five, six-year-old little kid in the middle of America. And I know that that narrative um, is persistent and, you know, uh, irritating to say the least, but it's a very persistent narrative. Um And so I just start to think about, like, when you think about the chronological nature of, like, you know, how racism has happened in in America over the years. And I know that it's also not just America, because one thing that we've learned on Getting Curious is that, like, Brazil had, like, a whole thing to do. I mean, there's, like, there's that whole triangle going on, like, in the 1600s and 1700s. So it's, like, not to vilify all of America, because racism happens, like, everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess the question is, is, like, how did we get here? And what is like the what is like the legislative history of like Jim Crow here? I swear to God, I'm done talking. Now. Okay. So you raised so many important questions. And first, I wanted to respond to you saying that America is not alone in this. And that's true. Racism, slavery has been a problem all around the world. The challenge that we have in America that other countries have um, handled better is that we have never acknowledged what we did. And the impact that what we did is continuing to have today. So um, my colleague Brian Stevenson often talks about going to Germany. And when you walk around, you see markers to the Holocaust so that people there never forget what happened. And in the United States, we're very quick to say that happened in the past. That has nothing to do with today. I didn't own enslaved people, so I have no responsibility uh, to, to, to make change. And I think unless we start to acknowledge the impact that history has today... We're never actually going to progress beyond um, the challenges that we face. Um, so you were asking Jim Crow and where did it all begin? I think it you you have to start to tell the story after emancipation. After emancipation, we had the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which helped to restore legal protections to, to black people who were um, formerly enslaved. And for a while there, we had some integration 
we saw uh, black people engaging in the political process of voting, holding office. And then in 1877, you had the election of Rutherford Hayes. And it all ended. And people believe that that is the start of Jim Crow. Okay, wait, must slow down. <clears throat> now you raise a bunch of questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, okay, so emancipation is 1865. Mm-hmm. Right. And, 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 I should know that so much more, you know, off my tongue without, like, questioning the last number. Um, I threw my pen when I said that. Okay, so 1865. So 1865 to 1877 is kind of a period of, like, more, more in air quotes, integration and, like, good things are happening. Good things also in air quotes. So let's say better things are happening, right? We started to move beyond... Moved towards there was some integration. It wasn't complete and total integration. Maybe it was a little salt and pepper integration. It was some... We saw black people serving in in Congress, participating in the political process, enforcing their legal rights, holding jobs, living side by side with white people. Um, And that ended with with the election of Rutherford Hayes. He pulled troops, Union troops out of the South and black people lost their protection. And that began, I would say, a centuries-long reign of racialized terror. So basically, Union troops post the Civil War were still stationed in the South to basically just, like, just make sure that everything was more fair and, like, less fucked up, but not all the way. Yeah, and I think some of it just, it it signaled that the federal government wasn't going to be there to protect black people anymore. And it allowed states in the South and the border states to feel like they had the ability to start to reinforce white supremacy and the racial order that they had grown accustomed to. We had this incredible guest earlier this year named Celeste Watkins-Hayes who writes this incredible book called Remaking a Life that talks about um, black women living with HIV. And it, and it talk, and we our conversation kind of like went into this more like historical view on things. And one thing that she was saying was about like this narrative that like, you know, oh, like there was this border between North and South and like everything in the North was like real nice. And like, you know, there wasn't like racism up there. And then in the South, it was like, and she didn't say that. Like, I was like, that's just what people kind of think. And Mm -hmm. she was like, in actuality, there was a whole bunch of stuff going on in the North that was not, there was just literal race. Like, I mean, just as fucked up as the South. A hundred percent. And so I think the South was a little bit more overt uh, with their discrimination, a little bit more pronounced. Uh, and in the North, it was subtle, but very, very much there. Um, so you asked about Jim Crow, and Jim Crow was predominantly in the South. And when people think of Jim Crow, they think about black codes, laws that required the legal separation of black people and white people. Um, but it was more than that. It was also a, so- a social system, um, a system of racial etiquette that impacted everyday life, that helped uh, white people maintain uh their sense of privilege, to define and control white spaces, to continue to impose a system of white supremacy, both legally and socially. And it went, like, I mean, it's church, like, it's places of worship, it's school, it's, I mean, everything is segregated. It is. And I I think you can say that uh, Black codes impacted everyday life from birth to burial. There was really nothing um, in there where it was not regulated. And it was where you can go to school, the hospitals that you could go to, where you could live. Um, 
whether or not you could go see the movies. There were different doors for black people and white people, different waiting areas. Um, of course, we always see photos of uh, black water fountains and white water fountains. Uh, and so legally, there was separation required, again, from birth to burial. And did that exist in and these laws like also just to be clear like existed in the north like people like not all states like there were some states in the mm-hmm. north and like states that like because like like Kansas or like Kansas and Missouri and like there was like western states that were like in mm-hmm. turn like were getting ready to become a union state or or were getting ready to become a state like in and around the Civil War but weren't yet states and remained like territories and there was like a bunch of super fucked up stuff going on there too awful stuff going on all over the place. And when you talk about um, out in the the West and moving out of the South, I think about sundown towns. And those were towns that got their name because they literally had signs posted that said black people should not find themselves here after sundown, that you can come in and work here and serve me. Don't think you're ever going to make this your home and you need to leave. And so we have those types of laws all over the country. One thing I think is kind of unique to the to the South was the, the full system of the racial etiquette and, and the way that it just impacted everyday social interactions. So you had rules that uh, black men could not extend their hands to white men because it would indicate that they were equal. Of course, black men could never touch a white woman in any way at all. White uh, black people would have to step off the sidewalk and move out of the way of white people who were passing. Uh, blacks and whites couldn't eat together. Black people were never allowed to use a white person's first name. And so you you think about uh, the Jim Crow laws, and there at least there were signs that indicated to you how to conduct yourself if you wanted to avoid the incredible punishments that came. Um, But when you think about the racial etiquette system, it was really hard to navigate, and it was just a daily terror for folks concerned that they would violate one of these unspoken, unwritten rules. So what was someone's ability to, what was a, well, first of all, do I say like, we say, we say a, if we're talking about like in history of like, like what was a black person's ability, like, is that like, yes, an African-American person's a black, we're going to say black person. I think black person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, what we're going to, like, what are we going to, what was a black person's ability to like get, like have upward economic mobility or like a way to better their lives. That's through. exactly right, right? So uh, the, the, we see that impact in Jim Crow today economically uh, on the, in the lives of, 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 of black folks and other people of color. If you weren't allowed to own property, property was taken from you, or you were only allowed to own a home in the, the least desirable neighborhoods, it has a compounding effect to today. If you weren't allowed to go to to colleges in your community, if you weren't allowed to have a, a full K through twelve education, then go to college or go to professional school. It limited your economic opportunities. If you could be fired because of the color of your skin, it limited your economic opportunities. So from eighteen seventy seven mm-hmm. to like nineteen sixties, yeah, because mm-hmm. like Lyndon Johnson or didn't the guy. Didn't the guy before Kennedy, but wasn't there like an the like the first like civil rights act? Wasn't that like in nineteen fifty seven or something? There are various civil rights acts, but I think when people talk about the civil rights act, they're talking about the civil rights act of nineteen sixty four. Yes, uh, which was passed uh, when Johnson was president after Kennedy was assassinated, and it I, I think in this starting with the civil rights act of nineteen sixty four. 
but then continuing to the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Fair Housing Act of 1968, that's when you started to to see the federal government intervene to try to protect um, the ability of black folks to become members of full members of the society. So like, yeah. So like I just had to, I had to pull up my timeline, honey. So it's like because like Harry Truman in 1948 yeah. in segregation in like the military but when you think about today like how people you know real like marica people that you would think about like in the south would be like a really big like thing for to uh make trump's base people like really excited is to talk about like troops mm-hmm. and when you think about like the sacrifice that troops gave in the revolutionary war and the civil war mm-hmm. and like every war that we've like ever mm-hmm. had le- up until 1948 and that there was still segregation that was, like, right. permissible and, like, encouraged in mm-hmm. that level of government. Mm-hmm. That's, like, all the, like, there couldn't be a bigger sense of disrespect to an American service member. Yeah. And also just how recent that history is. When you say those dates, that's not that far along. Yeah. Um, far in the past. Uh, people who live through that are still alive today. And so when we act like this happened 300 years ago and it was done... Um, it's it, it's really incorrect. And then 1954 is when the schools become... Brown versus Board of Education. Which was really like five cases rolled into one. But that's still like less than 100 It really is. Years. It really is. Um, and so progress has been slow. I think people th- uh, believe that there was emancipation, slavery was over. There was a little bit of Jim Crow, but then Brown versus Board of Education solved it all and we should all be good and everything is fine. Um, but it's, it's, it's not true because even Brown versus Board of Education, which you said was decided in 1954, today we're still fighting to implement the principles underlying Brown that uh, that separate is not equal and we have to have integration education. We're still fighting those fights today. When you think about Plessy versus Ferguson um, saying that it is the case in which they said separate was separate could, could be equal. We're still fighting that principle today. You see the threads. I want to talk about that more, but we're mm-hmm. going to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Getting Curious right after the break. Hey. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. Uh, we are back with Deborah Archer. So basically, you were just saying that... Um, in, in the implementation of the desegregation of schools, that was ruled in 1954, but we're still fighting against or fighting to implement all mm-hmm. of the tenets of that. So what were the tenets of that? And that's actually a lot of what you've written about, like in your work. So how are we still seeing like the ramifications of this now? So uh, Brown with the separate but equal, I think, has a thread in it that reaches back to to Jim Crow to connect to what you were talking about earlier. And that thread is that Jim Crow in many ways was about defining and protecting white space and white privilege. And in Brown, it was a challenge to an attempt to define white schools, white space and white privilege. And Brown said, you can't do that. In, in public education, separate is never equal. And Brown soon spread uh, to other areas where we saw challenges to separate busing and separate pools and started to, Brown was the first step in dismantling our, our segregation regime. But what continues today is this notion um, that there are white spaces and that the law should protect 
white spaces and the the what white people view as their privilege to control those spaces. So we see that still in in, in public education here in New York City, one of the most segregated school systems in the country. And at the same time, one of the most integrated cities in the country, we have intense segregation in our public schools. You see that protecting white space, I think, in um, the language and conversation around immigration, the fear that um, in a few years, America will be majority people of color. And I think a lot of what we see is a reaction to um, to that in an attempt to protect America as a white space. I see that in the challenges to affirmative action programs at places like Harvard and the University of North Carolina, that that is an attempt to protect white spaces that are growing increasingly diverse. So I think that's a thread that follows from Jim Crow through uh, today. And another thread that I, I see through all of that is um, the myth of excessive black criminality. Mm. That after emancipation, we started to spin this narrative that black people were so dangerous. They couldn't control themselves. So we had to protect white women. We had to protect white children. Uh, and that was a justification for segregation, keep them in their own spaces and out of our spaces. But don't you think that was also like, or isn't that also like inciting fear? Isn't that also just a means to control? Like haven't it we is. seen governments like do that? I mean, I'm not justifying. It's like super fucked up. But did you... I'm. This may be an incorrect assumption, but did you see the thirteenth? I did. I Those did. fucking films of them of of how they would portray mm-hmm. black people right. in those films. Right. It was, and also it's like I was. Just, did you see? I just watched Harriet like literally last mm-hmm. night in the plane mm-hmm. on the way home, mm-hmm. and I was really so. I started reading more about the Fugitive Slave Act. I just started like yeah. reading more about it, and it was really like Wisconsin, New Hampshire, Vermont, and I believe Pennsylvania were like four states where like that act was ba- was basically unenforceable because like the state legislatures and the governors like weren't having it, and they like went to make mm-hmm. state laws that like basically nullified it. But I was thinking about like New York, Maine. Illinois and like other states that were states at the time that like were in the north that like didn't make the list Mm -hmm. of like you know being more complicit in the things that were going on in the south and I have another question but like another thing I'm just like trying to like get in my head straight because if it took till 1964 to get to places of like you know, education was 1954, but then, like, you know, public spaces Mm -hmm. and you know, transportation, um. But what about voting? Mm -hmm. Because there's also such a, like, really fucked up, marginalized way that, like, you know, first, wasn't it that, like, black men were allowed to vote, but didn't, like, no women voted until, like, 19... It's the 100th anniversary we're celebrating of the 19th Amendment. So that's, like, 100 years. Mm -hmm. So, like, black women specifically in America have been, like, even more further marginalized. Always. In In every way. In voting, in employment, in education, um... Black women have been more marginalized than than other groups. And you said so much that I think is so incredibly important. And I want to pause to just acknowledge the power that films like The 13th and Harriet and Selma have had because they're providing this education to a much broader audience so that people can question what they see. People can um, get engaged and and involved. Um, And I think that's incredibly important. And then you mentioned... um, the narrative of black criminality as a as a means to control and, and and incite fear, and it absolutely was. You are one hundred percent right, and it was a way that um, white folks 
were able to justify this this system of segregation and white supremacy and to make people afraid to be with black people um, and then to invoke the criminal justice system as a means of control. And we see that today. Um, look at the school to prison pipeline. We're, we're thinking of children as young as, as pre-kindergarten and kindergarten as, as violent and treating them as, as criminals and calling in the police to address childhood or adolescent behavior. Which is going on very much now. I mean, we see Absolutely. those videos at least like once a quarter, but I'm sure it happens more often. Yes, all the time. Um, and we see the videos and it certainly is a fragment and it's helping people acknowledge that it's happened. But for every video you see, there are a hundred incidents that we, that we don't see. Um, and so we ne- really need to understand what um, a tragedy this is. You talked about voting rights and voting rights was, as I said, something that um, black folks exercised following the adoption of the 13th and 14th and 15th amendments. And then that was eroded during Jim Crow. 1965, we had the Voting Rights Act. And it was brilliant in the way that it was crafted because it it, it, it understood that that discrimination evolves and that white supremacy was going to adapt to black resistance. And so the Voting Rights Act of 1965 had measures that caught the new the new twist on on discrimination. And so at first, you know, it might be poll taxes uh, and then it Mm. might be literally literacy tests. And then it was changing poll sites. And now it's voter ID law. The problem is, is that the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act a few years ago in a case called Shelby County versus Holder, where they eliminated Section 5, which was the preclearance requirement. So if Georgia wanted to make changes to voting, they had to go to the Department of Justice and say, we want to make this change and then prove that it wasn't going to discriminate against people of color. That's gone now. And so right after... did that get overturned? I I cannot remember the the year. It... um, Maybe we can Google it on our phone. But it was relatively recently. John Roberts um, was on the court and uh, wrote that opinion gutting uh, the the Voting Rights Act. Immediately after, literally the day after the decision, Texas adopted and implemented its voter ID law, which had been struck down previously um, by that provision in the Voting Rights Act. And then we saw a proliferation of um, voter purges. Voter ID laws. We saw North Carolina elimination of early voting. Um, and the a court in North Carolina said that the North Carolina law targeted black people with surgical precision. For example, it eliminated it didn't eliminate all early voting days, but it eliminated the Sunday before Election Day. And black people in the South often call that souls to the polls where after church everyone as a congregation will go and vote. And they eliminated that day, but not other days. And so we see Mm. without the protection of the voting right, the full protection of the Voting Rights Act, um, that uh, black folks, people of color, poor people, um, and and, uh, surprisingly women, or not surprisingly women, are losing their their right to vote. So I was just thinking a few things. So... One thing that you said earlier that I feel like I'm, I thought was New York City has the most seg- some of the most segregated schools in the country. They do. That's something that you don't think about. No. How, like, how? Why? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people are asking how or why because some people would say that it's because of residential segregation. And that we are residentially segregated here in New York City, but that is not the full story. Because in high school, for example, in New York City, you can go to any 
high school in the city. If you live in Brooklyn, you can go to Bronx Science. Uh, the problem is, is that we have implemented a, a series of tests and screens for high schools that are not about ability. They are not about intelligence. They are not about the capacity for children to excel in high school. It is about access to money, access to resources, and access to information, which unfortunately in New York City is divided along racial lines. Um, So we have a test for some high schools that don't rely, don't actually test what you learn in middle school. And instead, people are having to go to test prep programs for a year before they apply to high school, and the test prep programs cost th- thousands of dollars, and people so don't automatically have makes right. So uh, you, you're not going to be able to pass that test and not be able to get to those schools. Um, and we also uh, just a, a, an incredible series of screens that New York City um, has implemented that keep children of color out of some of the the the, the most elite public schools. And how is isn't is there like not is it because Betsy DeVos is like the head of education so like no one's like sussing these things out like I mean how, like who's supposed to oversee these things well the city has a lot of control over those things um uh, there are some of it is uh, state controlled in New York they have mandated a, a test for the specialized high schools uh, but some of it is New York City and New York City has ad- has allowed um, schools to um, develop their own admissions criteria that exclude people of color and, and poor people. So, for example, uh, there are middle schools in New York City that are, are, are public schools, but you have to take a special entrance exam, or you have to have a portfolio, or you have to show up for a test at four o'clock on Friday, and there are certain kids whose parents can't get them to the test at four o'clock on Friday. Um, or you have to go for various tours and um, during the week on a school day, and people who ha- have jobs that don't allow that flexibility can't get out of work to take their child to this tour. None of that should be required. None of that speaks to whether or not um, a child can perform, has the ability, has the intelligence. And we also do gifted and talented tests for uh, for kindergarten kids. At four and five, we're testing uh, children at and deciding whether or not they're gifted. And based on that, they're funneled into different educational programs. Um, So certainly the federal government could have a a stronger oversight role. But New York City, there are things that that could be done today to increase integration in public schools uh, that aren't being done. Yeah, I mean, because there are so many financial implications that just make that racist and classist and it's mm-hmm. so preventative like for just like for people okay so i have another question okay affirmative action yes i was born in 1987 um i think that that affirmative action is some, like I, I think i know what it is and i you know obviously like heard people talking about it a lot as like a child i've like heard about it in my life but like i know that there's a concerted effort for people to say like this is no longer needed mm-hmm. um but i think that that's kind of been the case for the whole time of affirmative action, there's always been like a course of people that are like, no, we don't need this. That's not whatever. Um, I also think that in light of like the whole admission scandal of like, you know, seeing all these like elitist yes. people, you know, using their influence and power to gain access to schools, it almost speaks to like why affirmative action is even mm-hmm. more needed because you can use rich people can like manipulate the system. If- right. It, it was a blessing in disguise to show that there is no such thing as merit because we like to say that our systems are based on merit and the the best people get in. And if you don't get in, it's because you weren't. And we see that in immigration, too, because yeah. like Trump wants to do this merit system, which is actually like a money system. Yes. Um, and so it's not merit if you can buy your way into a school. 
It's not merit if you use tests and criteria um, that are more reflective of how much money your parents make than your than your ability. It is not merit if a, a large portion of seats at an elite school go to children of alums or children of faculty. Um, all of those things undermine the notion that this is a merit-based system. Um, and it's also important to recognize the, the, the role that the segregation in our K-12 through education system plays in access to higher education. And as long as we have a deeply and profoundly segregated K-12 through education system, you can't say that there's merit in, determin- in determining who gets into colleges and universities. Because people didn't have a fair shake. It's, at the it's g- not equal access at all. Yeah. So what is so for the people that don't know, what is affirmative action? So affirmative action is not giving someone a plus because they're they're black or a plus because they're a, a woman. It really is about the ability to holistically assess individuals and allowing race to be one factor among many factors in a holistic evaluation of who a person is. And I, 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 you know, I, I went to incredible college and uh, law school, and I'd like to think that I wasn't there because I was black, but that my college and my law school acknowledged the role that being a black person in the United States played in my development and in the challenges that I faced. And so people advocate for a totally um, race-blind system. In the Harvard case, one of the things that they were asking for and and people um, didn't really focus on is to remove every indication of race from someone's application so that you could never consider race. And really think about what that means, what that that kind of colorblindness means. That means if I was the president of the Black Student Union at my high school, that doesn't count. I don't get to put that accomplishment down. It means that if I go to a church where it's clear that the, the, the community is black from the name of the church, that wouldn't count. It means that you don't know so much about me and that my challenges and accomplishments mean nothing. Um, and that's not fair if it's only happening to children of color that we're only viewing part of them, but everyone else gets a holistic evaluation. Yeah, I mean, oh, I forgot. I, she was holding up a sign to take a break, but I was so engrossed with everything that you were saying that I didn't take one. So we're just going to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more after this. Hey. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Vaness. So when it comes to this colorblind system of like, and it's not like a plus or, it's, it does seem like schools and c- colleges like should like, I would want to know if a college was, like, admitting, like, 99% white men. Like, shouldn't people have to kind of, like, say, like, it seems like it should be fair, mm-hmm. like, how people are admitted, like, first of all. Mm-hmm. Second of all, but I don't, does affirmative action do that? Like, do they say, like, okay, like, do we just, like, need to see your numbers so that, like, we can make sure that you're not being an asshole? No, and in fact, the law doesn't allow people to do that. There can't be quotas. You can't say we want to ha- enter have a class that is 25% black, 25% Latinx. You can't do that. The law says you can't. Um, there is still this this mythology out there that that's happening. Really, affirmative action is about allowing colleges and universities to look at the whole person. If you're going to look and take into account that this, this person plays football yeah. and that this person plays the tuba or that you're from Iowa and we don't get a lot of applicants from Iowa, 
the fact that someone has uh, worked to overcome racism in in the, in the United States, the fact that someone views their racial identity as important to who they are, uh, should be something that um, a college is allowed to consider. And no one, I, I think no one would say, or most people would not say, that's not true that no one would say, but most people would say that the diversity is beneficial in your education. And people should not want to go to a college or university where there is not a, a, a rich array of folks and a robust exchange of ideas from one race to the other, from different genders, from different socioeconomic classes. Um, I think that's uh, that's important to education. It's important to business success. It's important to who we are. And when you have segregation, it not only harms um, children of color and it sends a message to them about who they are and where they belong in this society and their place in society. At their most impressionable age. At their most impressionable age. But also for white children. It gives them an unrealistic sense of who they are in society. It is a tool to perpetuate um, white supremacist ideas for them to believe that they have earned a spot at Harvard and that people of color just don't work as hard and can't earn that spot as well. It sends horrible messages. Um, And I think we really have to acknowledge the difference in resources that are, are are funneled into predominantly white institutions versus institutions that are viewed as um, as of um, predominantly people of color. So this colorblindness, I feel like, is not only like wanted to, or it's not. I didn't mean to air quote it because it mm-hmm, is what it is. Mm-hmm. But because um, I saw your eye go, but it's like it wasn't that. No, no, no. But it's like, <laughs> but it's like, no. But it's like so because I feel like that's a lot of times where, where people want to have this colorblindness. Where it's like, well, I don't see color. Like I see this and that, and you know, it's like I just want to see people for who they are. Like mm-hmm. I don't want to have to because sometimes people that is like an argument that I feel like I hear like coming out of like Trumpy. Yeah. And also on my explore page on Instagram, all of a sudden for some reason. All these, like, Trump-ass supporting, like, white fucking crazy, like, climate change, like, people who don't believe it and, like, like guys, schools, person on, like, why privileges, like, a whatever, just, like, started popping up on my Explore page. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but I think that's, like, why it's, I'm, like, I just, like, want to, like, refute <laughs> all of it. So, whatever. So, but it's, like, to... to for people to, you know, not want to take these things into account is... In, it's a whitewashing of history. It's like it's 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 a saying like that these things didn't happen and that these things that have happened in history don't make an impact mm-hmm. on now. And I think that a lot of times when when there has been, you know, a pain or an injustice inflicted on someone, right? It's like uh I did something I hurt I did something fucked up to you, so like you apologize and you move on, right? That's like if you like I don't know, take someone's spot in the yoga studio or like cut them <laughs> off, you know, this is slavery, mm-hmm. you know, and because of the things that are in, in involved in slavery, such as free labor, like Elizabeth Warren was talking about this on in this speech, but it's like, because like Wall Street was literally built on the mm-hmm. backs of slaves, like they're like our economic foundations were built on people that didn't get paid. Like, women couldn't vote in their own interests. Like, black mm-hmm. women couldn't vote in their mm-hmm. own interests. Like, that is, that was holding back people from, like, that, that's time owed. That's, in, that's, it's a, that's mm-hmm. reparations. Like, it's like, when I had a client that, like, if you no-showed me for a fucking haircut, I could have done someone else. <laughs> like, and so, but you take that for hundreds of years of like, you know, slower buses that didn't work as well right. because you had to be on the black bus that you couldn't get to a good, to a better mm-hmm. uh, interview or you couldn't even take this job because right. of the color of your skin. Like that's hundreds of years of lost wages, of lost opportunity. Absolutely. So to say that that didn't 
didn't happen or whatever. And even if you were to compare this to getting cut off in traffic or whatever, you're still supposed to be like, I'm sorry. And like, if you fucking bumped their car or whatever, if you had a car accident, you were, you had to pay for it. <laughs> Yes, and that is reparations, which has right? never happened. And which if you don't show up for your appointment, you owe me a hundred dollars. Which le- yes, <laughs> which leads us back to the German thing of mm-hmm. like how you know after the Holocaust, like the, it's like the way that that country is handled, like how fucked up mm-hmm. they. It's like this we never have never. really come back to it, never. and and we also allowed the people to kind of like pass laws like in Jim Crow and and, and to kind of impose this further idea of like well the segregation in in lieu of slavery mm-hmm. that we're still seeing, especially in mass incarceration and family separation which isn't only at the border it's like right here in America because of like the mass incarceration system so to not acknowledge it those so I guess it's like how can how can we get people to come on the other side and see things that they maybe don't want to see like the people on my explore page so I you said something interesting that people will say I just don't see race and I have friends um who say that and believe that it is a positive thing. And to me, it is not a positive thing. I don't want you not to see my race. My racial identity is important to who I am and my experience and how I navigate this world. And I don't want you to not see it. It's part of this American ideal. I think America calls ourselves the great melting pot. Um, I've heard folks from Canada call themselves a, a, a mosaic. And I like the mosaic idea better because it allows everyone to remain to maintain their individual identity yeah, and still come together yes. yes come together for something more beautiful as opposed to this melting pot where i have to lose who i am to become um, um one some with brown you. sludge like yeah. i don't want to be a no. fucking melting pot we want to be a beautiful stained no, glass honey. window mosaic yeah and so you talked about the legacy um and we have to examine every aspect of of our communities and our lives to look at the legacy of slavery, to look at the legacy of Jim Crow, to look at the legacy of discrimination. You talked about um, buses and slow buses in the community. It made me think about our, our interstate highway system that was built in the 1950s. And almost without fail, the interstate highway system targeted black communities. It it uh, destroyed black communities, removed Thousands and thousands of homes took churches, took uh, schools, separated children from their schools. It entrenched racial segregation. It re- we had racial zoning laws and highways were often built right on that same line to make sure that it was difficult for black people to migrate into white communities. So that 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 phrase of like on the other side of the track. Yes. The, the train tracks. Um, also, highways. All of those things were designed intentionally to separate. And now we look at those communities and say, you all chose to live here. You don't take care of your community. You don't invest in your community. When in fact, we were, it was destined to be this way. We, we destroyed those communities, starved them for resources, starved them for opportunities, walled them off from opportunities. Um, um, and now we say we can't do anything about it. It's too bad. That's just the way things are. So we really need to do um, is examine the way things are and trace it back, follow that legacy, and to understand why things are the way they are. Why do we have highways that go through the middle of black communities? Why are the communities around highways um, so resource-starved, concentrated poverty, racial segregation? Why aren't there um, sufficient public transportation systems in, in predominantly black communities so they can get to the jobs, so they can get to the opportunities um, to really examine 
our, our, our environment, even our physical environment, to understand the ways um, that we are perpetuating inequality. Is it because no one wants to feel like a dick? Like, mm-hmm. no one likes to feel like an asshole. I certainly don't like to feel like an asshole. Yeah. But don't, like, how, what are we going to do? Yeah, you don't, it's this, this sense like we that we have to, get it together. Right. we don't have to point fingers. We don't have to assign blame. And so you could have not personally done anything wrong, but still benefit from what the wrong that was done. And, and, and to and you enjoy a privilege that comes at the expense of others. And so we have to get people to... Acknowledge, Acknowledge that and not be afraid to engage. We're not saying that you have done something wrong, but we are saying that a wrong was done and that something needs to be done um, to correct it. And I, people often say equality is not a pie. And so the fact that if I get more doesn't mean that you get oh, yes. less. I love an abundance, right? equal, yeah. abundance solution, not a scarcity one. <laughs> yes. So I guess, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, I think it's also like one of those things where it's like you're, you know, I just want to get, all of those people in my explore page videos that are these really scary kind of people. I don't even pe- know what that is. I'm so behind. Do you know, I what in- you know Instagram? I don't have Instagram. Okay. No, well, on I'm- Instagram. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. It used to be that on my Instagram, it was like, on, so the explore page is just like things like if you look up the hashtags, like the, the explore page will bring you. So this okay. is the explore page with this little like magnifying glass, right? Mm-hmm. And as you can see, mine is all figure skaters, yes. shirtless uh, fitness people who I'm assuming are gay. Uh, you know, cute, like gorgeous people, uh-huh. figure skating, gymnastics, fashion, hair. That's okay. usually what there's. But all of a sudden, these like alt right ass videos started like populating mm-hmm. my Instagram explore page, like in the last like three months of like these scary mm-hmm. white guys that'll be like, <clears throat> so and so schools climate change activist, or, you know, so and so schools someone on, uh, on affirmative action Mm -hmm. and it's these kind of uh, alt-right content Mm -hmm. on Instagram and Facebook that, Mm -hmm. you know, these Trump supporting people will really look at. And it's, it doesn't seem like based off the metrics that I see on there, it doesn't seem like they're, you know, getting 10 views or it seems like there's kind of like a large breeding ground Mm -hmm. of this sort of like vitriolic, like, you know, white privilege thing. And I just really am like, how, I think it's like people's unwillingness to uh, I, there is like a psychological thing going on there where it's like a lack of like not being educated and then seeing something that makes them feel gross about their legacy and then they fucking like shit their pants. And some of it is fear, fear that you are losing ground, fear that you are no longer necessary, fear that you're losing um power, fear that you fear that you're losing privilege and um this is how some folks respond to it, uh, you know, fear that other people are making advances. That's why President Obama's election triggered so much, so quickly, so aggressively, because it was a symbol of something of a, of a day they never wanted to see come. That must seem like really speak something to my personal psyche, though, is that like that doesn't even occur to me like that, like, you know, to be upset that like white people are losing power. It's like like we should be more upset that we had a legacy of being such dicks. <laughs> <laughs> like that's where my that's mm-hmm. where my fucking not shame even comes losing, in. Not even losing power, right? That we're just becoming more whatever. equitable. Yeah, yeah, right. We're I'm, just I'm, becoming more equitable. So, let's, and let's that's a good the, thing. Let's do this. It's equi- a good let's thing. Let's do this equi- equality. Equ- yes, equitable. We love equality. We love equitable. So, who do you think are like the kind of like? Do you have any like young, like younger, like like? Oh, I, mean, I don't care about like young necessarily, but like who are like the fierce like civil rights leaders of like today that are like the new generation of people who you're like oh 
they got it together, honey. Like yes. So we were talking about um, integration in New York City, and there was a group of teens, and this is generally true. If if you are over thirty and you don't have someone in their twenties in your life who is a mentor to you, then you are missing out. Guilty. And, I need one. Okay. Well, I, well, I'm lucky. I work in a law school, so I have you know, hundreds every year. Um, In the civil rights movement, young people were leading the way, were at the forefront, really taking risks that other folks were not willing to take. And I think that that's true today. You talk a lot about it in the climate change sphere, but that's true in all areas, in particular racial justice. Um, Talking about school segregation in New York City, there's an organization called Teens Take Charge, and they are fearless. uh, And they are impatient in the best possible way. They see what is going on and don't think that it's inevitable. Don't think it has to be that way. They're not interested in incremental change. They want radical change. They want revolutionary change. And I think sometimes the best thing for us to do is stand back and follow their lead because they are thinking creatively and expansively um, and envisioning justice in a way that I think I had never envisioned. Um, And so for me, I think we have to look at a lot of the youth-led movements um, and take a page out of their book to, you know, follow their lead. What? Okay, last question because I know we need to start to wrap up. But what? Um, in looking into the into the next year, how can we, or what do you think needs to happen in order for us to? Like, do you think that there's, like, a healing balm that could happen in order for us to defeat Donald Trump, like, through, like, a unity, gorgeousness 2020 moment? No? I'm not one for the unity healing moment to solve our problems. I am one for the... Kick him in the nuts? Get out and vote. Yes. (laughs) Right? Let your voice be heard. Take action. We saw what, in the last election cycle, what can happen. Small changes if people get out and vote. We need to vote. We see what happened when we didn't vote. And if you care about your own rights, if you care about your neighbor's rights, vote like your rights are the ones at stake. If you are a white person, think about the people of color in your life and what's at stake for them and vote in a way to protect them. If you are uh, a man, vote to think about how you can protect the women in your vote to protect the rights of the women in your life. We need to get out and vote. So I don't want to think too far in the future. I want to think about November. And That's what people what I mean. need to yeah. do. Yes. You know, yeah, let's yeah. not think about 2025. No, or I just mean 2020. Yes, let's, yeah, just a few months from now, Everyone needs to get out to vote. We need to register to vote. Um, and we need to make sure that everyone who wants to vote has the opportunity to. So we should be doing voter protection work. We should be voting re- voter registration work right now, not in October, not in September, right now. And because so many state laws like prevent you from being able to do it kind of in the last minute. Yes. So then the last question, I swear to God. So because like, I, mean, I would be remiss. <laughs> you're, you're, uh, you're, you're at a law school. You literally like are a lawyer. So there's... A few major Supreme Court cases that are like coming, like through the pipelines mm-hmm. this year. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have your eye on any? Like, is there just like, is there something that you're watching specifically that like you think we all need to be watching? That's like a random question I didn't prep you for. I'm sorry, but is there? It doesn't even need to be related to those cases. But is there mm-hmm. just something that you're yeah. watching for that you wish that more people were kind of? I think we should be paying attention to, and I think everyone is paying attention. So I'm. I think I'm already. I'm speaking to the 
preaching to the choir here, paying attention to the Supreme Court decisions that are going to be coming down on the the protections of, under Title VII um, for uh, gender identity yeah. and sexual orientation. Because I think not only is it going to impact um, those folks directly, it will impact everyone the way that they interpret those laws. Um, and it's important if we want to have a community where everyone feels welcome, where everyone has a right um, and ability to, to succeed – we have to have the most expansive possible interpretations of our civil rights laws. Um, and so that includes protections based on sexual orientation and gender identity. It includes protections based on race that acknowledge differences um, between black people and white people. So we're seeing lots of discrimination around black women's hair. And we want, and so the Supreme Court's opinion and how tightly they interpret Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act is going to have broad implications and we should be paying you attention think it could, to that. Uh, how do you think these rulings could impact, like, w- women being able to wear their hair how they want? So I think <laughs> this may be too in the weeds for you, but par- part of the challenge um, with the law is that people made assumptions that sexual orientation or lots of courts believe and argue that sexual orientation was covered under Title Seven because there was a case uh, where a woman who was not stereotypically feminine was fired and she was protected. They said that the fact that you don't stereotypically act like um, they believe a woman should act um, and they fire you because of that is a violation of Title VII. Um, And so going back to the notion that there's some type of accepted way of expressing your expressing gender or race or um, acting in the workplace um, is problematic. And we do have cases that say, I just because I prohibit you from having dreadlocks, doesn't mean that that's racial because white people could have dreadlocks. And so the, the, one of the challenges that we face are these purportedly neutral laws that have discriminatory applications. Yeah. Um, and that's and that's a challenge, too. Yeah. And, like, let me wear my fucking gorgeous C4 natural texture in a fucking lock. <laughs> fucker. <laughs> yes. Get off right? my nuts. Thank you. Yes. No, your textures. I've been, oh, uh, just, I've been like, it, it actually did distract me from two beginning of two questions because I was like I was like did she twist it is it her natural it is a twist out that, but I do have an, a natural hair yeah literally tricep chills oh, so pretty thank you yeah thank you I'm really proud of myself for getting to the end of like a 50 minute conversation without because I'm like really trying to like stop complimenting women's hair right first out of the gate because it's just a natural I can't help it Oh. I love hair. Yes, if, it's in your, it. if it's in your blood, it's in your it's blood. It's in my blood, you know? <laughs> but I realize that I, but I also just think I like women's hair. It's not really a sexist thing. I just mm-hmm. prefer women's hair over men's hair because there's just more to look at, you know? We, can, we, we feel like we can be a little bit more creative. And I'm hetero so- for hair. Only for hair, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Unless it's hair like mine and then I'm, I just like more hair. Whatever. I got really off topic for the end of the conversation. Yes, and I just want to mention one more thing about this Supreme yes, Court. Maybe a better answer to your question of what we should be we, we should be watching. With this election, we should be watching the makeup of the Supreme Court because it's going to – the next president will have the ability, I believe, to appoint another Supreme Court justice and will really tip um, the court – generations yeah and the way that um trump has remade the federal courts it will have decades and decades of 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 impact thank you so much for your time oh this was so much fun i really appreciate it thank you 
You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Deborah Archer. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of wherever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Getting Curious is produced by me, Julie Carrillo, Ray Ellis, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson. 